0: This episode is hosted by Alex Debris. Alex is the author of the DynamoDB book, The Comprehensive Guide to Data Modeling with DynamoDB, as well as the DynamoDB Guide, a free guided introduction to DynamoDB. He runs a consulting company where he assists clients with DynamoDB data modeling, serverless architectures, and general AWS usage. You can find more of his work at alexdebris.com. Data analytics technology and tools have come a long way in the last decade, but it can still take weeks to prototype, build, and deploy new transformations and deployments, usually requiring significant engineering resources. Plus, most data isn't real-time. Most of it is still batch-processed. TinyBird Analytics provides you with an easy way to ingest and query large amounts of data in real-time, as well as to automatically create an API to consume those queries. This makes it extremely easy to build fast and scalable applications that query your data. No back-end needed. In this episode, we interview George Sancha, founder and CEO at TinyBird.
1: Jorge Sancha, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Alex. Thanks
2: for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah. So Jorge, you are the founder of TinyBird, which is a real-time analytics company. Tell us more. What does TinyBird do? So TinyBird is a
2: platform and a set of tools that speed up and simplify development over huge amounts of data, over data at any scale really, just using the SQL query language. It helps developers ingest and transform data at any scale. And then it also enables them to build APIs that they can expose and integrate into their product. So you could think of it as a data warehouse for developers. One that they can use as a backend to build and scale APIs over any amount of data. It also works serverless. So it's designed specifically for developers that might not be familiar with infrastructure uh, such that you don't have to worry about how many servers you need to provision or what's the right configuration for each of them, et cetera. You just throw data at us and we take care of helping you (laughs) scale that up. And essentially our goal is to enable any developer to build and scale data products and applications over, over any amount of data, whether that's big or small.
1: Awesome. I love it. And I, w- I wanna get more into the architecture and, and all that stuff later on. But one question I have here is like what data size should I have when I before I start considering TinyBird? I mean the beauty of
2: it is it doesn't really matter. This works really well anyway. It's more about what type of data, more than the size of the data and you know what you want to do with it. So It's great for analytical data is when you want to figure out things based on data that you're generating constantly, more so than to build a transactional application, you know, like an e-commerce or something like that. It is to analyze data and do things based on that, whether that is informational or automation or personalization. There's a bunch of use cases for that. But one of our goals is that it's always fast, so it doesn't matter if you're Starting with uh, you know a few hundred records per minute or something like that, or thousands of records per second, this is designed to build up. And you know our key value prop is not just the scale; is the speed at which you can develop at any scale. So how quickly you can get to market with your solution. So that's the core of our focus. Is is that combination?
1: Awesome. And and so you're talking about, you mentioned like speed of analytics queries as well. Can you give me a sense of like, hey, some of your large scale users, like how many rows are we talking? And like, what's the query times for doing analytics over those rows?
2: Yeah, so we have customers that are ingesting
1: 250,000
2: records per second, for instance. And based on that, they are building a bunch of different use cases from a web application firewall that, you know, it's uh, APIs that are analyzing the data that is coming in constantly to detect denial of service attacks and mitigate them automatically to using that data also to build usage-based billing or also to show it to your customers as user-facing or in-product analytics. So those are the sizes that, you know, we can manage and, and more, that's just one customer. So. You know obviously we you know the aggregate of that is, is much more, and then we have on the other side on the query side up to thousands of requests per second as well in terms of apis that are exposed, and those have to be you know very low latency such that it can scale because otherwise it becomes prohibitive so we see latency depending on the use case, but we see latencies of thirty milliseconds or sixty milliseconds and sometimes two hundred milliseconds, but it really depends on on your use case and what you're trying to optimized for
1: absolutely and you know we hear this i think in the last couple of years we've heard more and more people talking about real time real time data things like that like what does this mean real time like how real time is this especially for large aggregation type things how behind is my data there this is really interesting
2: and this is something that we've been finding a lot in conversation since we started a lot of people hear real time and immediately disconnect from the conversation because, you know, what does it really mean real-time? Where is the line that divides real-time from not real-time? But also because a lot of data teams are working with batch processes and have been doing that for many years. And a lot of people immediately say, no, we don't need real-time for a use case. The thing is that real-time is so crazily better than not real-time that once you start solving problems in real time, first, is super sticky because you start thinking, wow, like I didn't even realize this was was possible. And you start thinking, hey, what else can I do with real time? But also, it opens up when you sort of reduce the order of magnitude of time that queries take, it opens up new ways of working, both from the point of view of development. It's not the same if your query takes a few milliseconds when you're developing, than if it takes 30 seconds. You know, your experience of development is very different. But also from the operational point of view, if you can know exactly what's going on right now with your e-commerce or the marketing campaign you just put out, or the players in your games, whether they have just hit a specific goal or something like that, and you can react to that automatically, it really changes the way that companies operate. And we've seen that repeated over and over, how they start thinking about their business in a different way and it opens up new opportunities. So when we talk about real-time, we talk about the combination of where the data is being generated and when it's being consumed. And we're talking about sub-second, couple of seconds there. That's enough to you know consider it uh, real-time and to enable all of those new ways of working.
1: I love that, how you know just the... Really tightening that feedback loop, how it just changes behavior. It reminds me of like software release cycles and how that's changed. You know, it's not a quarter releasing, you're just doing continuous integration and how that it's not just speeding up. It's changing how you build stuff and and iterate and all sorts of things. Exactly.
2: It's a new paradigm and it's really difficult to explain until you actually use it. One of the beauties of 90 is, you know, how, for instance, Kafka, it enables you to ingest data and you have those topics that you can consume at different speeds by different consumers. So it's great in the sense that, you know, you don't have to decide in advance what you're going to do with the data. So Dynaberg works like that as well. Like you can start ingesting in real time and solve one use case, but actually because the data is there and writing a new use case is just one SQL query away and then you activate an API and you can start consuming it, it drives a lot of usage you can bring in other data to enrich it so we've seen great expansion within our accounts because first the real-time aspect of it and also because it's so quick to develop and put new things in production that you know becomes a sort of a no-brainer to do more things you know it's been beautiful to see
1: yeah awesome i love it okay i want to dig into the architecture and technical bits a little bit i mean First of all, like what's happening under the hood with Tinybird to like power these, you know, performantly serve these huge OLAP queries. Like what's what's going on there?
2: Yeah, so we use ClickHouse as our OLAP database under the hood and we take advantage of a lot of the sort of real-time capabilities of, of ClickHouse and we contribute to them
1: as well. Can you tell me a second about like, what is ClickHouse? Yeah, maybe just for people that aren't familiar.
2: Yeah, so ClickHouse is an open source database that came out of Yandex many years ago. They built it to basically do website analytics, do do click house, you know, to manage, to, to keep track of clicks and events and so on. It's great for all uploads, for time series, and it's designed to scale horizontally and, and vertically as well. So it's really powerful, but we always say it's a bit like a Formula One in the sense that if you have a team of specialists that have been doing this for a long time and you have, you know, the Formula One driver, you know, you can make the car run at 200 kilometers per hour. Tiny Bird is basically taking the best of ClickHouse and helping any driver, you know, drive the Formula One, let's say.
1: Yeah, I love that. I remember when QuickHouse was kind of new and I was using Redshift at my, at my job for something. I was like, oh, you know, we wanted something a little faster. We wanted to try it out. We tried it out. It was like, it was really fast. We're just like, there are so many moving parts and components here. And I, I don't know enough about tuning it to, to make it work. So awesome to see that as yeah. a, a hosted solution. How did you, I guess, sort of get in, in, involved in, in QuickHouse and figure out, hey, I want to start this company, Tiny Bird, that, that manages it?
2: Yeah, I should say here that I'm not the only founder. We're, we're a five founder team. We've been working together for a long time. We used to work at a company called Carto, which is in the location intelligence space. And at the time, they used Postgres, and we were struggling to meet the demands of our customers who we were coming with an order of magnitude more data every year, let's say. We started thinking about how to solve that, how to cut through all of that you know, a thousand times the data. And that's how we started investigating. Carto went in a different direction, more about, you know, building on top of other databases rather than than building their own sort of platform. And we started leaving, but finding the same problems in other companies. Whenever there are huge amounts of data and you want to build something on top, people throw cathedrals of infrastructure at it. Also, there's been this whole conditioning going on about the modern data stack and, you know, all tightly sort of divided up in verticals and components that VCs can invest in, you know, but actually that doesn't lend itself great to real time. And, you know, it comes with huge costs because every handoff you're paying, you know, the toll. And basically we we wanted to do away with all of that. We wanted to work as developers, which is, hey, I love the idea of I have data, I write some SQL and I can make something of it you know so that's tiny bird in in a nutshell it's the desire to essentially work with any amount of data in the same way that we work with smallest amount of data
1: awesome and and i assume a lot of people listening are familiar with postgres mysql and just sql generally and how it works but like you're saying when you get up into those orders of magnitude more scale it it doesn't work so like what is ClickHouse doing under the hood that, that you know, gives it the same interface, SQL interface, but like under the hood, what is it doing differently than a traditional OLTP database?
2: The biggest difference is that it's a columnar database. And essentially that means that the data in the disk is stored per columns rather than per rows. So that is, makes a lot of sense for analytical queries, because if you want to add up, like, you know, do a sum or sum of numbers, you don't have to go row by row to find all the specific columns. You basically read all those numbers in one go and it, it becomes it is much, much faster. And then it's built for scale, like every single analytical function, like a sum or a count or a unique, you know, they're all designed specifically to scale and you know to work in such a way that also queries can be distributed across different nodes. So you can have one billion records and you have four nodes, you can divide the data into a quarter of a billion records in each machine, you know, calculate that and then put it together. So that's what can help you scale to massive amounts of data. So the combination of those things and a bunch of other things here and there. But those are the main architectural designs, let's say, or approach that helps you do that
1: yeah absolutely that's great and then so based on that you know we have a columnar rather than a row based one we also are are splitting and trying to paralyze this work are there any like rdbms patterns that you know people are used to using in oltp databases but then are inefficient don't work in ClickHouse, need to change how that works yeah i mean
2: because the data is stored in columns that means that things like updates or deletes are harder because you need to find specifically each row in every part of the disk to get rid of it or to update it. So although it is possible to do, it's not, you know, it can't be done at scale the same way that you can do inserts or queries in in ClickHouse. In Tinybird we've solved that. We've added a sort of a layer on top of ClickHouse to the product that enables you to do large replacements and deletes, more from the point of view of, mistakes are made often like i've been ingesting the wrong data i want to replace all of this data and so that's very easy to do in Tinybird. and then from the point of view of designs and sort of the difference between rd rdbms things like that are trivial or part of the normal way of working like doing upserts for instance you know and or duplicating stuff that's not Trivial to do in ClickHouse. There are, depending on the use case, you might want to do different. It's possible, but you have to solve it at query time more often than not. It has some ways of doing it, but it doesn't guarantee the duplication. So we help a lot of our customers to find the right strategy, depending on on the right sort of on the volumes and, and the use case.
1: Also, I know like a lot of OLTP people, they're like, Hey, if I need an access pattern that I want to make faster, I right, add an index, things like that. I mean, does ClickHouse TinyBird, does it have the notion of indexes? And if so, why not?
2: Yeah. Basically it boils down to how you sort the data. There's a sorting key in ClickHouse that you can specify. That's really important when you have huge volumes, because for instance, if you have, um, if you're building analytics for your users you have a SaaS product, for instance, you're going to have a company ID or a customer ID, and then you're going to have some dates, and then you're going to have some events that you want to query. So if you sort it by company ID and by date, whenever you query, ClickHouse is going to find exactly, you know even if you have billions of rows, it will only read the rows that refer to those companies. So the way you sort the data can be important, and then that becomes especially important as you iterate, And that's why at TinyBird, we also spend a lot of, invest a lot in helping users iterate because it's not easy to iterate when you have billions of rows and data coming in all the time and queries happening against your table and so on. So being able to iterate on those as you learn what you need, it's really important as well.
1: As I was looking about TinyBird, I saw this concept of of pipes as I'm sort of getting data in. What are pipes? Why are they important? How do I use them? How does that work?
2: Yeah. So when we started, Tiny bird first iteration of it, it was, you know, have like a data, like a SQL editor, and that was it. The problem is as things get complicated, you start getting queries that are like this big, you know, you know, like really long queries that are hard to parse, that even for the people that have created them, the next time they come around, you need to sort of figure out what is this doing kind of thing. So with pipes, it's a way to chain queries. So you can, for instance, let's say you first want to filter data. Well, you filter the data first in one of the nodes of the pipe. And then in the next node, you can query the results of the filter that you've done before and start aggregating. And then maybe you want to do in a different node, you want to query some other data source and you want to join the result in a different node. So you can do joins between nodes, or you can do unions and, and that these pipes are a bit like Jupyter notebooks, but in SQL. So you can comment as you go. You have a way to enter comments and to document what you're doing which we've found really helps with development and with bringing the rest of the team along to what you're doing and and so on. So it's become a great way to develop and explore and work together in in data projects. Gotcha,
1: okay, so pipes are, they're a read time thing. They're not changing how I'm ingesting or like organizing the data differently on storage. It's it's all happening at read time going through those pipes?
2: I should have started there. Pipes, you can use them for different things. One of the things is creating API endpoints. So you can write a query, click a button, becomes an API that you can start integrating. But you can also use them to materialize data. So instead of saying, hey, the output of this query, I want it to be an API, what you do is the output of this query, I want to materialize into another data source or a data set that you can then query from a different pipe, for instance. So you can, pipes are very flexible in that sense and and you can use them for these things. And we're working on other things like using the result of those pipes to send them somewhere else, not even to materialize, but to send them to a S3 bucket or a Kafka topic or so as you're getting data, you can transform it and send it somewhere else as well.
1: As I'm working with ClickHouse and especially thinking about joins, does it make more sense to sort of do joins at, at read time or should I be doing that beforehand joining, you know, denormalizing, having a wider table that can filter directly on that? Like what what makes sense there?
2: We have a bunch of rules, you know. There's a there's a bit of a mindset you need to get when working with. Uh, so in general, if you want to scale queries, not just in ClickHouse but in columnar databases, but with Tinybird, we we always sort of encourage our users to think in a particular way. One of them is first, if you're going to filter, filter first, because apart from the sorting key we we're talking about earlier, you know, if you filter, if you're not going to be using some data, just filter it out as soon as possible. Then if you're going to do joins, join as late as you can. So if you can filter out the data, then do your aggregation and then join, then it's going to be much faster than in you join first and then aggregate because you will be doing it with a smaller amount of data. So it's not so much that you can't do joins, you can do joins, no problem, is how do you make them fast? And there's a bunch of rules that we are sort of first educating our users on but also bringing into the product in terms of paradigms and guidelines that you should follow to make your APIs fast basically
1: yeah interesting do you have like query planner type statistics or, or different things where i can see hey i ran this query and like you're saying maybe i'm using a join inefficiently how, how can i debug that or what does that look like for, for a user
2: yeah yeah we invested a lot in providing observability on top of what you're doing so in the very same pipe when you run a query you can see how much data you're scanning, how you know how long did it take, how many cores did it use, you know, to see if it's being distributed or not. And then you can also, once you publish your APIs, by the way, all of the exploration queries in TinyBird are free. So we're not gonna charge you for while you're developing, let's say. So in the pipes, all of that's free. But when you expose an API and then you start using it, you're gonna want to know. How much data am I processing? How fast is this going? How many requests do I have? So all of that data in real time, we dump it back into your account so you can query it with pipes. So in the same way you query your own data, you can query the data that your account is producing. So it's very meta, you know, like everything you produce, we enable it for you to query as well. And people are doing amazing stuff. Like for instance, they're building APIs over those data sources and then integrating with Datadog to monitor their usage or to monitor, you know, performance and, and things like that. So it's become super, like the, the observability layer, it's uh,
1: a very important part of our, our product. Awesome. I love it. I think it's so interesting to learn more about like columnar databases and how they're different than, than the row-based stuff and how it really twists your mind. Like, uh, you know, a bunch of things you mentioned. One other thing that always stands out to me, you know, if you have like a sharded database, whether that's a NoSQL one or even like Vitus or or something like that. Often you want to try and hit exactly one shard, you know, find the exact item you want and and pull that record back. But like you're saying, ClickHouse is also sharding, but you sort of want to use up those, like make sure each shard is doing fourth of the work if you have four nodes, like you were saying, easier. So just like some of the paradigm shifts moving between OLTP, OLAP is is interesting. And I I, I think educational work is just such a big part of what you all have to do and just (laughs) teaching people how to use those things and it's a deep
2: topic like you can it's fractal the more you learn the more you realize there's more to learn but at the same time you know there's a set of guidelines again that once you sort of master and you start thinking like that you get really good performance at least with tiny bird i can't judge for other products, but you get really good performance out of the gate and then when you know for bigger accounts and and so on we have different plans, but We have, for big accounts, we also enable sort of services as in, we call it Premier Support, which is essentially, there's a named data engineer you can talk to in Slack that basically knows your use case, but also knows the product inside out, because we want to ensure that you can, you know, we never want someone to be annoyed because they're paying too much because their queries are consuming the wrong data. It doesn't make a difference when you're dealing with small Amounts of data you know it's it, it won't move the needle, but if you have billions of rows, you're going to want to optimize and so on and then now we're also doing something we call the jump start package, which is for people that just want to try and basically it it comes with a data engineer as well to help you get to production and then you can stay on that package or move on to other packages as long as you want, because I think there's people that sort of because they don't control the medium you know. Just having someone that says, hey, look, try this, try this, start with this starter kit, or it really helps a lot and, and gives people a lot of confidence.
1: Yeah, I love it. On that same note, you're talking about packages, plans, like what does pricing look like for Tinybird? Is it usage-based, is it monthly, or how, how does that work?
2: There's a free plan. You can start on a free plan and basically it includes a thousand requests a day. So as long as you, you build something small and you wanna, you know, for personal use and things like that, Very rare that you'll hit more than a 1,000 requests a day. And then if you want to remove the limits, basically you put your credit card in and then we charge by two levers, let's say. One is process data, which means how much data you're scanning or writing, and also storage, although storage is something that over time normally is the smaller part of the bill, let's say. But we're sort of working towards trying to remove that uh, entirely to make this storage as cheap as possible so that, you know, you only have to think about what is you're building, how much you're using the system, right? Really.
1: And in terms of architecture, I mean, is this a, is it like a multi-tenant system that you're running? Are, are people running on shared machines? Or are you, if someone provisions a new instance of TinyBird, you're going to set up, you know, four nodes somewhere for them and they're just for them. What's that look like?
2: We have multi-tenant infrastructure out of the gate. So if you sign up, you're in multi-tenant infrastructure. But then for bigger deals, let's say, or sort of a enterprise deals, then we have a lot of dedicated infrastructure provisions, but it is completely transparent to you as in you don't have to do anything. You basically, as part of of becoming one of those customers, you go into dedicated infrastructure and then you're only sharing, let's say, the first, the front end, let's say, and then everything else, it's your database resources and such that you know that you don't have noisy neighbors or anything like that
1: yeah absolutely you know as a developer i love the trend towards more like fully managed databases and stuff and it's great and you've been doing this now at a, a couple of companies both carto and, and here what's hard about running a managed database solution you know other hood, like what, what are the difficult parts that you've sort of learned
2: the first two things that come to mind are first that when you put a you know platform out there with a set of apis and a database and tell people hey use it however you want people do the craziest things you know so you know, and use it in ways that you didn't even imagine, you know, it could be used. So that generates a lot of tension because suddenly you had designed your architecture thinking of certain use cases and suddenly you're hitting limits and problems that you hadn't sort of designed for. And that's constant. That happened sort of the first day we had a customer and continues to happen to this day because the more customers you have, the more things they'll try to do and more pressure it'll bring to bear, let's say. So that's something you sort of have to manage and and sort of start to put rails for people to try to uh, you know go through without losing the flexibility that we want to provide so certain limits and certain type of operations to ensure that you know things remain within reason and so on. The other part also is like there's a part of the market that is as as you were saying like you're excited about things becoming fully managed and serverless and so on, and there's a whole we see a big trend in that direction but some companies and for policy reasons and for you know they want to have it sort of hosted and so on so that's things we also from a go-to-market point of view we come across but anyway it's all part of it's not that we didn't expect this but we knew it from Carto the same same problems but that is something you have to also think through and what's your strategy there and and so on so those are the things that that come to mind. Yep, awesome.
1: We talked a lot about ingesting data, querying data, things like that. Where does the data come from? Like, how do people get data into you? I imagine they're just not hitting it in an API one by one with 250,000, you know, rows a second. So how do they get that data to Tinyverse? You'd be
2: surprised, but, uh,
1: <laughs> well, for streaming data, the way we started was
2: with CSVs. We had an API when you would send a CSV. That was like three years ago. The reason we did that is because CSV is the universal currency for databases any database can produce a csv and so on so we thought well it's always going to be a good default but very soon we saw that the push was towards streaming and we built a kafka connector that kafka connector is through which we receive our biggest loads at the moment but also we found that there are people that don't just they don't want to go through the hassle of either hosting kafka or have the added expense of hosting the Kafka somewhere else. So we built a streaming endpoint. We call it the Events API. And essentially, it's an endpoint that you can send one or more NDJSON objects in every request. So you can send maybe 2,000 objects every request or one every request, however your use case is. And we ingest that in with very high frequency at an amazing scale. And that a lot of our users are using that, interestingly, because... Even if sometimes they're using Kafka or Kinesis, actually it solves a lot of problems. It simplifies setups a lot. It's just a trivial post to us, and that's really it. That's another great way. And then we have connectors to other data warehouses like BigQuery or Snowflake and so on. And those are more to bring dimensional data because customers already have data sitting in databases like a product table or you know, customer plans or whatever. And then with those connectors, we just keep the data synchronized so that you can do joins and you can enrich in real time when you ingest and, and things like that.
1: Yeah, very cool. What about, you know, ingesting, like tailing from OLTP sources, whether it's, you know, MySQL replication log or DynamoDB yep. streams or something like that? Is that something you all are looking at or what's that look like? We did
2: our own first implementation of a CDC connector as well, but it's working for a couple of customers, but we're not going to continue that. We're going to, for CDC approach, we're going with Debissium because it's battle tested already. It can go through Kafka. It can, you know, you, we can do sort of different approaches there. The problem with CDC and scaling CDC is not so much, you know, that's the bin log problem. Let's say it's solved. DVSIM does that really well and others. The problem is because the data that you're get, getting from bin log is not just inserts. It's also, you know, updates and, and so on. Deletes is how do you deal with that in the all-up side? So it's very easy to, if you have an append-only table, super easy to replicate and set up. It's harder if you have updates and so on and you want to keep like an always up-to-date version of the data and that's something that we're working on to facilitate as well so that it's transparent and so on we do it now following some like sort of micro batching and sort of uh, materializing in batches and so on so we can solve the problem right now but it's not ideal and that's something we're working as well towards trying to solve in a more transparent way because it's uh i mean if you think about it who wouldn't want that you know it's like connecting to Having a scalable replica for analytical queries of whatever you're doing in your database, but we also use tailors for other things like logs and things like that. There's, we have a bunch of use cases building real-time analytics over logs. We have a tailor that we open-source called TV Tail that you can connect to any log and just send to our events API, so that you can build, you know, a web application firewall or charts over your Logs and so on, and you know, connected to other data sources and, and things like that. So, pretty useful as well.
1: Yeah, very cool. Okay. I love it. Okay, I want to close off with just a little bit about the company, the future, things like that. So, tell me about about Tiny Verite. How long have you all been around? How big is the company? What's where are you all based? What's that look like?
2: Yeah, so we officially started sort of by mid 2019, so three years ago, and we, you know, we're now almost 60 people. We've raised a bunch of money. You can. Uh, sort of uh, with CRV and Crane and and Singular and which amazing investors have been great to us and we are now we're a US based company we started in we're all Spanish founders but the headquarters is in the US and the company is growing a lot here and I'm, I'm living in in the US now and that's where we're at and you know we're seeing huge opportunities and huge interest in sort of real time data storage and processing and so on. And yeah, we're here to capture all of that <laughs> as much as we can.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, in three years, y'all have some good logos on the site and that's a lot of just like core infrastructure that you need to build up before, you know, you can even start taking on users. So y'all have done a great job there. what last thing I want to ask Just like what future improvements, like any like target areas you're, you're looking at or, or features or different things, what's on your roadmap?
2: Yeah, so there's a bunch of things. One, obviously, one of them is we want to be completely cloud agnostic. And we started in one cloud, which is Google Cloud. And now we're very soon we'll announce another cloud. And we basically want to go for all of them. Because, you know, people have very strong requirements about that. Like they want to be in one cloud or other. They don't want to be paying egress costs, you know, moving data around, things like that. That makes complete sense. And we don't really care. We want to be where our customers are. We also, you know, lowering the barrier of entry and making sort of connectors to pretty much anything that people use is also really interesting to us. Because again, the experience that we want to provide is that you can build an API literally in a couple of minutes. And that part of that is saying, okay, my data is here. How do I expose it here? So we're investing in in that a lot. And then another Constant source of improvements for us is in the iteration of, and how you build data products as a team with tests and in the same way that you build software development projects anywhere. And it, you know, if you think as a something like Rails, for instance, like Rails has migrations, when you want to put something in production, there's a way to do those things. With analytical data is not as straightforward because, you know, maybe a Rails application database is I don't know, one gigabyte if you know, and I'm pushing very high. But analytical databases can be terabytes of data or more, you know. So when you want to make changes it's not as simple as, hey, I'm just gonna run a query that is gonna turn this column into something else, you know. It can be very complex. So we're investing a lot in making that trivial, safe, and easy, you know. So that's a big, big technical challenge. And we're obviously hiring. So uh, anyone hearing this, we're always hiring.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you're solving these problems so that uh, I don't have to. I can just use the the cool stuff. And I really appreciate you coming on and and teach us, you know, how ClickHouse and Honeybird are, you know, thinking about columnar databases and parallel databases as compared to, to LTP stores. I think this was really useful to a lot of people. So Jorge, thanks for coming on, talking about Tiny Word and, and best of luck to y'all going forward.
2: Of course, thank you for having me, Alex.